Good morning. My name is Elise Postma. This morning, our scripture reading is from the book of Judges. Please follow along in your Bibles or use the screens. I will be reading from chapters 12 through 15 from chapter 6 in the New International Version. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied. But if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about? When, they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt, but now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Thank you so much for reading the passage for us. We are in a series called Imperfect, and the intent of the title of the series is to underscore just how imperfect human beings are against and contrasted against God who is really the only one who is perfect. And so in the word imperfect, we have I am perfect or I'm perfect, which is God, and imperfect, which is us. I did a little email search in my inbox for the word sorry. And the word sorry appeared in 42 emails since January 1st, 2019. 39 of those emails were written by me to other people. No exaggeration. Three people used the word sorry in reply to me, telling me I don't need to be sorry. Today, I want to talk about how faith is imperfect, about how the idea of being good or perfect, or being disappointed with myself is just really futile. There is no point in us thinking in terms of perfect, or imperfect, or good, or bad. There was a guy in the Bible who came to Jesus, and he's sort of trying to impress Jesus, and he says, good teacher, what must I do? And he goes on to ask his question, but really the question was a setup to help uh, communicate to Jesus how perfect he was. And he wanted to know, in what ways have I not been perfect? Because as far as I can tell, I have been perfect, is his question. And Jesus doesn't even entertain the specifics, but in general, he replies by saying, why do you call me good? Don't you know that only God is good? Meaning, why are you, a human being, even thinking in terms of good and bad? Why is that a category that's relevant for you? Don't you know outside of God, that conversation doesn't even make sense. It's like human beings talking about things that don't apply to them at all. Why would you do that? Lots of examples of this uh, idea in uh, our uh, pop culture as well. How many of you watch uh, a show called The Good Place on NBC? Yeah. Uh, three of you. <laughs> I sort of got hooked on this show because, I think because I was curious 
how um, Hollywood would depict, depict heaven and hell. And the show is about a bunch of people who go to heaven, or so they think. They turn, it turns out that it's actually hell that they're in, what they call the bad place. And it's a bunch of demons playing tricks on them, making them think they're in heaven or the good place. And then it's sort of their journey from the bad place, trying to get to the good place. And right now where we're at is they uh, realize that when they analyze the database of people that have gone to the good place, that nobody has made it to the good place for thousands of years. And then they realize nobody has made it into the good place because the world has become increasingly complex. So they talk about something like toothpaste or something. They say, so somebody's really trying hard to be good. But then they realize uh, even if they do all their research and pick the very best, the goodest toothpaste they could, even that really, really good toothpaste is, is embedded in a system that's so complicated, there is no way that all the ingredients that are used and all the containers and the shipping trucks and the process from nothing to something and getting that good something to you is so tainted and so compromised that you lose too many points. By the time that really good toothpaste gets into your hands, you're already bad. You're damned if you use the toothpaste. You're damned if you don't. And that's sort of life in a nutshell. Life is so complicated that if you think you're doing good here in area A, you are messing something up or neglecting something or uh, just not thinking about something in area B. There is no way to not cheat on one thing if you're focused on another. There's no way to be good all around. The Bible simplifies it and says, your righteousness, what you, whatever you think is good, however you perceive it to God, in reality, it's like rags. It's just so dirty. It would make other people sick if they knew just how bad your goodness really is was. So that's not the game. That's not the point of existence. And so I want to ask, where do we get the memo that life is about trying to be good? Why does that category live in our heads? The way we look out at the world, the way we look at ourselves, the way we treat each other, it all reflects this idea of good and bad of perfect, of imperfect. Why are you so disappointed in yourself? Why are you surprised that you messed up again? What, what, what else did you expect? And why? And what does it gain you if you did do all right? Then what? Who cares? Point to the judge. Show me the one with the gavel in their hands. Where are you looking to? Who's keeping score? What game are you playing? What system are you a part of? The Bible teaches that God alone is the judge. And only by his verdict do you stand or fall. We live for his eyes only. No other opinion matters at all. At all. Why do we think this way? 
I love uh, this show, as some of you know, The Office. And I'm not, I'm not saying you should watch it. It's not all, you know, per- it's not perfect. It's not all good. But I want you to know the show takes plan- place in Scranton, Pennsylvania. And that's where Susie and I had our first date. She was visiting her brother or dropping her brother off in college at Cornell in Ithaca. I was uh, starting a church in New York. And so we just looked at a map, a physical map, because that's what we did back then. And we picked a spot in the middle. It was Scranton, Pennsylvania. She took a Greyhound. I drove. We met. And we had our first date uh, at a restaurant that doesn't exist anymore called Beefsteak Charlie's. I'll always love The Office. There's this one episode I love, one scene I love in this episode. There's a, it's a regional paper company based in Scranton, Pennsylvania, and there's another branch in Stanford, Connecticut, right? And one of those branches are about to close, and the word on the street is that it's going to be Scranton. I can't have Scranton closed, right? So I'm invested in this episode. And Michael, the office manager, and his henchman, uh, uh, henchman uh, Dwight, They drive to the CFO's house in Connecticut, and they're parked outside of his house, and they're going to have a word with David Wallace to make sure Scranton doesn't close, but David is out of town. So they wait all day. It's morning, then it's afternoon, then it's night, and it's dark. But things happen while they're waiting for David Wallace to show up, and it turns out that Scranton's not going to close. Stanford is going to close. But they are so determined to have no contact with the outside world until they fix this that they don't realize that Stanford is the one closing and people have been calling them to tell them that they're not closing. But they don't know this. Finally, they give up. They give up. They're not good enough. And then Dwight checks his voicemail. And then he hears that Scranton is not closing. Stanford is closing. Then he starts celebrating. And he celebrates by saying, Michael, We did it. We did it. We're not closing. Stanford is closing. And then Michael says, we did it. We did it. And they start high-fiving. They're celebrating. They're kicking their feet up in the air. And then they have a realization. They look at each other and they go, how do we do it? I don't know. How do we do it? Love this scene. Because how are you alive? How are you here this morning? How did you make it here? How come you're not dead? Is it by your goodness that you're here? Is it by your competence or your consistency? How are you here? How did you make it? And Susie and I have been saying this phrase a lot. We've been saying, how? How? We just look at each other and go, how? And I say, by the skin of our teeth, that's how. I don't know how. But we did it! We get to celebrate. But we get to take no credit for it whatsoever. Um, I've been doing some work with the conference, and there's been some intense work that I've I've been in. I'm mediating a a church situation with lots of people in the room, Uh, just a lot of this person versus that person versus this person versus that group. And so there's, there's a lot of triangles, a lot of intensity, people shouting at the top of their lungs. It's really challenging and fun. Um, and then I come home, and then Susie says, how did it go? And I said, somehow, somehow, I did it. 
I did it. How? I don't know. I have no idea how I'm alive. Now she's preaching. <laughs> so I want you to say this with me. Okay, you got to say it exactly the way I say it. How? 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 Somehow. Somehow. We did it! We did it. We did it. Guys, we are so imperfect. Everyone is so imperfect. Our journey is so imperfect. And Gideon's story today is a story of someone who is so imperfect. Yet he somehow, somehow is the judge that saves Israel. How was Israel saved? By Gideon? How? Somehow. Somehow they're not dead. So we have four lessons, okay? We're going to move pretty quick. Verse 6 and verse 8. By way of review, here is Judges. Three chapters in five seconds. Verse 1, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. And then verse 8, 33a. No sooner had Gideon died than the Israelites again prostituted themselves to the Baals. That's it. That's the story of Israel. Rinse, repeat. Rinse, repeat. They mess up. They're imperfect. Their imperfection takes over, becomes a defining trait of who they are and how they live. And then God sends a judge. The judge kind of helps them. We don't know how because the judge himself is an Israelite and is so imperfect. And then as soon as the judge is gone, revert. Muscle memory kicks in. This is the story of Israel. This is the pattern of Israel. This is the pattern of human behavior. This is the story of humanity. You have never heard a different story. You have never lived a different life. This is your life. So here is lesson number one. Human goodness. And you have to agree with me. I don't know how you're going to disagree with me if you're honest about yourself. If you read the news at all, if you study history at all, if you understand human nature, here's lesson one. Human goodness is not upheld from within. Human goodness is not upheld from within. It is not you. You did it, but you have no idea how. You have no idea. You're in the good place. How? You have no idea. This has to be your conclusion. There can be no other conclusion. How is your marriage intact? You have no idea. You have to have no idea. You have to be utterly confused if you look at yourself because there's no way you're upholding anything from within. Human history tells us that. There is some kind of outside force that's intervening in your life on a regular basis, turning back the clock, reversing the natural course of events towards chaos and decay. Remember, we've gone over this so many times. Your life, your nature, your goodness, everything is traveling in one direction towards chaos and decay. 
everything is getting worse. It's supposed to be getting worse. And yet somehow here you stand. How? Somehow. And this somehow, Christians believe, is God. That God is immutable. He's unchanging. He's not on the same pathway as you. He doesn't get worse. He's not tending towards chaos and decay. He remains good forever and ever and ever. He never changes. He's constant. And this God intervenes in your life in ways that you don't ever give him even credit for. There is no way you can understand how much a part he is of your existence. And if you were to know, you would have to at least say thank you. Your hands would rise up a little bit in praise. There is someone who is worthy and it's not you. This is what Christians believe. Um, if you want to read a really good book on this, it's a secular book by a man named Steven Pinker. I read this a couple of years ago. The title of the book is Better Angels of Our Nature. It's the world history of violence. And his observation and astute analysis is that everything in the world is generally getting better violence-wise. And he sort of scratches his head at the end and goes, how come the world is getting better? Everything we know about existence and how the world works should mean that the world is getting worse. And yet it's getting better. We did it as a world. How? We don't know. Okay, here's lesson number two. And uh, I'm going to read us these verses. And this is sort of oft-claimed. And so I want to read it, and I want to dispel some myths and get to lesson number two. So follow along. It's just a story, so hopefully it doesn't feel long. Starting with verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 12. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my Lord. Gideon replied, But if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? There's a question of evil and suffering. Where are all the wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of the Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have, you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. So just a little... Uh, Side commentary here. One of the prevailing questions of humanity always is, how come there is evil if God is good? Why is there suffering in the world? Why do, good things, uh, why do bad things happen to good people? And part of the answer we see throughout Scripture and true today is God is committed to working through you. You are God's redemptive catalytic agents. You are God's presence in the world. How is the world not just tumble into chaos? Because of you. You are the salt. You are the light. You are the intervention. And so if you ask why, you should also ask why me? This is where Gideon goes, right? He says, how come me? Don't you know? How can I save Israel? Okay. Uh, 
chapter 6, verse 17, Gideon replied, If now I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. Verse 23, But the Lord said to him, Peace, do not be afraid, you are not going to die. 24a, So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it, The Lord is Peace. 27, so Gideon took 10 of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was afraid of his family and the townspeople, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. Okay, last part, verse 36. Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand as you said. And that is what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, do not be angry with me. Let me, just make, uh, let me make just one more request. Allow me, to, uh, allow me one more test with the fleece, but this time make the fleece dry and let the ground be covered with dew. That night God did so, only the fleece was dry. All the ground was covered with dew. We sort of get a description of fear here. And from Gideon's story, we learn that fear is something that happens when you focus on yourself. And so Gideon says, how can I save Israel? Not just I, but my family. My family's the weakest, and I'm the weakest in my family. And he can't believe it. And then he's afraid of his own family members He's afraid of the Midianites. He's afraid of everything, everyone. He's constantly wanting assurance. And so some people like to use this story. They say, I have to put out a fleece. And they want to know sort of a sign. God, show me a sign. And this isn't about that. The authorial intent of this story is God addressing Gideon's fear. It's not about Gideon reading God's mind to know his will. And so I think that's a misappropriation of the use of Scripture. And in fact, when people do that, it's really uh, betraying a fear that they have. They're afraid, so they're trying to put the responsibility of their life or their decision onto somebody else. They're shunning responsibility rather than trying to know God's will. And so even in the misappropriation and in the authorial intent of the story here, we see this story is about fear. That's lesson number two. That if you focus on yourself, you will be afraid. And then we have lesson number three. Chapter 7, verse 2. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands, or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. So what's happening here in lesson three is that Gideon had thousands of people. And God thinks... You know, if Gideon with his thousands of men defeat the Midianites, then they'll take the credit for it. So I'm going to sort of take away all the men. And so Gideon just has 300 men, and he defeats the Midianites. And when he does that, then he credits God, because then he knows the truth that would have been true had he fought with thousands, that it was always God to begin with. So here's lesson number three. Faith is a trust, not in a principle, but in a person. And so the counter to fear is a kind of faith that is a trust in somebody else. And I want to make this point because this is so important in our day and age. And it's going to be important in Gideon's life too. We'll see with lesson number four. 
Here's this. God is love, but love is not God. We are saved by faith, but we are not saved by faith itself. We are much in need of grace, but it's not grace that saves us. And here's what I'm saying. You know, I've been um, kind of fascinated with the way that our society turns to, and literature and Hollywood, all these uh, just human beings turn to these ideas that find their perfect explanation in Christian faith. So let's take the idea of love. Every song you could possibly listen to, it's about love. And so people love love. People dream about love. People will kill for love. Love is ultimate. But it's not love in and of itself that we're really after. But it's the love of God. It's love as embodied, as uh, is made manifest in the person of God. So all the love in the world, if you are perfectly loved by all beings on the planet, it can't save you because it can't give you the kind of love that you actually need and want. It's not salvific. And part of the uh, assertion of Scripture is that it's not just love, but it's God as love that we are longing for. It's the person of God that we experience through his, the nature of his relationship to us, which is love. And so the love part of what we love is just penultimate. The ultimate thing that the human heart is after is God himself. And that's why it's only Jesus. It's not love. We don't sing praise songs to love. That's what the world does. But we sing songs to God himself. And so, yeah, we have to believe. And people say, oh, you got to believe. I have to believe in myself. I have to believe in these people. It's not faith that saves you. It's faith in God that saves you. So this one final step that remains that you have to take is to not only experience love or have faith, but it's really to see through that to the person of God himself. It's not a principle, but it is a person. There's something very specific about that, and this is what I think the scriptures mean when we spend our whole lives sort of unpacking this truth. We, with fear and trembling, work out our salvation. We somehow interact with and contend with Jesus himself, the person. It's really only Jesus it's really only God. And this is a stumbling block that the world doesn't know what to do with. Like Christians are so close to being politically correct. Christians are so close to being so palatable and acceptable. You know, why can't you just be just content with love and faith and all these good things? Why do you have to say Jesus? Why? Why? It's like I can pray anywhere if I'm not if I'm willing to not say Jesus. Like they would love for me sort of to be this universalist pastor who shows up anywhere and just pray this eloquent and universally just like oh just warm blanket Peter just just 
fill, just fill this space with just, uni- just the, all the positivity and the karma that the universe has to offer. And I say, in nobody's name I pray. In particular. You know, in, in love's name I pray. Like people will love that. And yet I have to say Jesus. Final lesson, and this is our last one. Chapter 8, verse 23. But Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And he said, I do, not, I do have one request, that each of you give me an earring from you, your share of the plunder. So they defeated the Midianites, and they, they plund, you know, plundering the people you defeat, it's, it's normal. It's what people did. Um, Verse 27, Gideon made the gold, these are all the gold that he collected from the people, Gideon made the gold into an ephod, which he placed in Oprah, his town. All Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. You guys, Gideon was so close. He was so close. He was a hero, and I didn't read this, but Israel tried to make him king. They made him an offer, a job offer he should not have refused. And he turned it down because he was so small in his own eyes. I'm not king. It was God. It was God. It was God. It was not me. Stop giving me the credit. Oh, he did so good. And at the end, he said, oh, my goodness, look at all that plunder. Just give me a little bit of it. And then he made an ephod. It's just a transliteration of the Hebrew. Nobody really knows what this is. Some say it was this high priestly garment that had gold in it. Some say it was a tiny little statue or something. But here's what we know. It represented all the victories in Gideon's life. And he set it up because he was afraid. Gideon's life long issue was a focus on himself that made him afraid and fearful. He could never get over himself. He couldn't sort of look up just a little bit more and see that it was God and all God and will always be God, has always been God. He just couldn't take that final ultimate step. He stayed penultimate. Because it's not victory that saves you. It's victory from God that saves you. But his eyes stopped just shy of God, and he stayed in victory land. And that created an insecurity that lasted till he died. And so he made this little idol. And then all of Israel said, well, if Gideon, our leader, our judge, you know, is putting his faith in this idol, we will too. So they they would come to him. They would have pilgrimage to his house and they would worship this little gold thing, whatever that thing was. And it became a snare to him for the rest of his life. Gideon was imperfect. And here's what I know about you and about me. Every person in this room will have one primary issue or trait that will showcase the fact of their imperfection for the rest of their life. 
You, for the rest of your life, will walk with a limp. You will never, ever be perfect. You will always have something that you're tripping on. And if you don't know what that is, somebody next to you does. And it's so that, so that, just like with Gideon and his 300 men, you would know that it's not you, that it was God all along. That you, as hard as you tried, you're imperfect. I want to tell you, we are dependent utterly on God's perfection, on God's love, on God's victory. What we have is fear. And it's going to be a snare to us for the rest of our lives. But here's an invitation to lift our eyes up. Don't stop just one step shy. Just look up just a couple more degrees, and there is God standing in the backdrop of your life, giving to you, serving you, ministering to you, taking care of you in ways you cannot know until you look up. Today we're going to have communion. Um, Pastor Bud's going to be leading us through the elements. I'm going to stand up here as I did last month and offer prayer for anyone that wants it. I am imperfect. You know this. Even if I'm eloquent about it, it doesn't mean I'm not imperfect. And so my prayers have no more power than your prayers. But if it helps you, I will stand here and I will pray for you. Just come up and tell me what you're struggling with. I'm going to say one sentence prayer for you. You're going to say a one sentence explanation before that. And do that before you take communion. So come on up. I'll pray for you. And then you bring that prayer with you to communion. Okay, so as people line up, if you want prayer, you can come around the table, come to me, and then uh, receive the elements so that we can try to end on time together. Would you bow your heads with me? God, I invite myself and our people here today to come to you, not to love, not to a victory, but to you who is love, who is victory. So God, our journey is so imperfect, and so we come to you today. Help us to do this each and every day. And let it fundamentally change how we feel about each other, about the world. I pray this in Jesus' name.